0: Episode 23 of Writers Festival Radio. As always, we are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers Festival, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review Writers Festival Radio, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support. Will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. We can't do it without you. In this episode, we look at race in Canada, specifically anti-black racism. As Canadians, we have a proud tradition of comparing ourselves favorably to our neighbors to the south. That has long been one of the ways we avoid serious self-reflection, but let's be clear. Racism is alive and well in Canada. It exists in the RCMP, in government, on campuses, and in hospitals, boardrooms, classrooms, and newsrooms. Today, CBC's Ethel Musa speaks with two acclaimed non-fiction authors, Eternity Martis and Tessa McWatt. They said this would be fun. Race, Campus Life, and Growing Up by Eternity Martis is a powerful memoir about what it's like to be a student of color on a predominantly white campus. Using her award-winning reporting skills, Eternity connects her own experience the systemic issues plaguing students today, it's a memoir of pain, but also resilience. Here's CBC's Ithil Musa in conversation with Eternity Martis.
1: I really, really loved this book. I read it and I also listened to you as well. So it was a joy to actually hear you read it, to be honest, It it was lovely. Thank you. Obviously, this you know issue, this big the elephant in the room is this issue of race. and it's really come to the forefront, I, I would say in the last several years, especially also with the growth of the Black Lives uh, Matter movement. I really appreciated your book because there's not much written about the black experience when it comes to university campuses, particularly in our country. The first question I wanted to ask you is, you had an idea of what university was going to be like before you went? Mm-hmm. and then the reality hit you and i and i and i want to ask you what did you think it was going to be like and when did you know it was going to be different for you
2: well i think what i thought it was going to be like was every kind of frosh frat you know um Greek kind of life type of environment. That's what I was hoping for. So, all I had known about university, and I'm coming from a background where I'm second generation Canadian. I don't have anyone in my family who went to a Canadian university. So, all I knew about the university campus experience was through movies like The House Bunny, American Pie, um, Neighbors, which came out after I had graduated. But that's what I was assuming was going to happen. And as a sheltered very shy um, black emo kid in high school i thought well you know university seems to be the place where i can read a book by myself and no one's going to call me a loner So all these things kind of coincided. I read Maclean's. Maclean said it was a top party school in Canada. So a light bulb kind of went off where I'm like, okay, so I can be, I can go somewhere else two hours away from home, drop this label that you could place this box that you could place into when you're in high school and be my own person and then party and have this fantastic experience where I can come out of my shell and be who I want to be. And um, I would say that I learned that uh, that was going to happen within the first week. And the first week was, uh, it was frosh week. So before, um before, before um, Western would have their uh, their frosh week before class started. And, um, you know, you go to each other's rooms, you drink, like drinking is a, is a currency and you meet people. And I realized I was the only black girl on the floor. My roommate was South Asian. I'm part South Asian. And there's another black guy on the floor, but it was the two of us, we looked at each other, we made eye contact, we were friends. But what I would hear is um, like, there'd be people coming but hey, there's a black girl on the floor. Or like, what's up? And then, you know, you clink drinks and you're thinking to yourself, oh, this is kind of funny, I guess. You kind of surrender to the environment, right? Like you're like, okay, uh, everything that happens here, it's cool, we're cool. And um, then it really would start to get to me. And that's where it really started when I was like, oh my goodness, we're, we're not in Toronto anymore.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it's interesting because y- you left you know, high school hoping to escape a box only to be put into another one, really, essentially.
2: Absolutely, yes. And the thing about you know, about high school is that when you get put into that that box, even if that's not who you are, you it's very hard to shake that box. So even if you, you know, you graduate, you have a good job and you're still in your hometown, people see you that way. So I had kind of gone to learn about myself, but then also learned that I was gonna be put into another box and in a way that I didn't identify, I'd never identified as black. And it wasn't until I stepped foot in London where black became the way that I had to survive the environment.
1: And you talk a, a little bit about sort of the micro and macro aggressions that you, that you faced, you know? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's hard for people to understand what it's like to be different Um, in a room, on a campus, in a work environment, to be the only one to face these sorts of things. What are some of the things that you experience on a day to day that you kind of had to overcome?
2: Well, I think the first thing about microaggressions that people think that they're not a very big deal in many many ways microaggressions are sometimes worse than the explicit um explicit racism right because they they dig at you they poke at you you can't tell if it's racist or not but then you start to feel bad about yourself and just Kind of to summarize microaggressions are like they can be gestures they can be a word a comment your english is so good can i touch your hair they can be a look it can be someone not sitting beside you because they're not used to people who look like you and these things could be intentional or unintentional and so for me they had started as um things like oh your hair can i touch your hair is your hair real Um, Which I'm used to, but it was different in this context because it was paired with other things. So in class, one of the biggest microaggressions I faced that really took a toll on my my self-esteem was being in class and no one sitting beside me. And it was a very interesting experience because in in about 95% of my classes, I was the only black person. And a lot of times in the conversations we were having, I learned that I was the first kind of black person that these students who were kind of from just outside of London had ever encountered. So they wouldn't sit beside me. So class would be entirely full, and, you know, in the winter, there's bags in the, in the, ha- in the aisles, there's, there's jackets, and people would take the chair beside me and they'd lift it up and take it somewhere else because they didn't want to sit beside me. And that really weighed quite heavily on me. Um, on, there's a scene in my book where I talk about being on the bus and the bus is completely full and nobody wants to sit beside me. And then a Black girl gets on the bus and she looks at me and she's reluctant to, to sit down. And the second she does, a white woman asks, are you related? And it's just this, uh, this moment of absurdity, but it's those tiny little things that um, they make it hard. They make you both invis- hyper invisible and incredibly visible. Um, and so that's those are really, really difficult um, walking on the sidewalk and white, you know, groups of white students having a conversation and then you having to step off the sidewalk. And if you don't, just getting body slammed like you're not even there it was just everywhere. It was in class. It was on campus. It was in the library. It was going out at nighttime. It was everywhere. And by third and fourth year, I, um, I just kind of withdrew. I stopped participating in class. I stopped going out because I just didn't want to deal with it anymore.
1: When you're telling me about all these experiences, you would think that you would find connection and camaraderie with other black people, but that wasn't actually the case. Tell me a little bit about that and the conclusion you came to as to why.
2: Absolutely. So I did have my one black friend in residence and we were close, we were tight and we were, we were loud. We played a lot of hip hop. We danced. It was great to have that. But then um, there was a lot of interaction outside of that. So there's a scene that I'm in my book where it's about I think it's October, and I'm just like, where are where are the black people? Because when I before I went to Western, everyone said there are no black people. I didn't ask questions. I thought, eh, I'll deal with it when it happens. And I see a black girl who's about my age. She's crossing uh, the bridge on the Thames, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna make a friend. And I look at her, and she sees me. And then when I walk past her, I'm thinking of all the things I'm going to say to her, and she pretends that she doesn't see me, and she looks down, and she, she looks away. And I'm like, okay, that was weird. But then as I started to see a couple of Black people on campus here and there, they would do the exact same thing. They would see me from afar, but when I got close enough, they didn't, they wouldn't look at me. And by the time I got to third or fourth year, I started to do the same thing to people. And I think what it is, is that you, you don't want to draw attention to yourself. When you're one Black person in that environment, it's already hard. Everyone sees you. You're very visible, but you're also invisible. When you add more of us to a situation, and when I get to third and fourth year and I meet other Black students, I noticed this, when there were groups of us, people kind of stare at you in like fear and loathing. They think you're obnoxious. Suddenly everyone's watching you. They think you're being entitled. You're too loud, your laughter is too loud. And there's this moment um, that's not in my book where um, I was um, part of a play and we were a group of black girls, we were just hanging out and we were laughing. And I just happened to look over, we were in the cafeteria I look over and it was like the entire cafeteria, they were looking at us. And so I could understand why you don't wanna draw attention to yourself in that environment. So you wanna be there for someone, but sometimes in a situation like that, being there for each other is just seeing each other from afar and not interacting.
1: Right, because you've got that policing that's happening with your behavior, how you look, how you act, which is ironic because when you think about universities like Western, all I can think about are big, obnoxious, bro guys.
2: Yes, <laughs> yes, and that's okay. And that's, that's always seemed to be okay. And um, in the book, I talk about noise and the noise that Black people make. And um, having a group of Black people laughing is seen as obnoxious, But they were moving like frat houses to certain parts of different neighborhoods so that the frat boys, who are predominantly white, can make noise. So your noise is monitored. Who you are is monitored. We're black bodies in white spaces. So I can understand why we wouldn't want to interact even when we needed the interaction.
1: Yeah. One of the the stories I I remember reading about involved cultural appropriation in in the context of costuming. Yes, And something that's happened in university campuses like Queen's. And also it happened to you when you were at a bar. Tell me a little bit about that experience and, and what that's like. Because so I read that and that just was like, I don't know what I would have done in that moment being confronted in that way, that racism.
2: Absolutely. Honestly, I still don't even know. I get asked this so many, so much. Um, what, what were you thinking? And I'm like, honestly, I don't know. It's, it's. You never think it you're gonna walk through the world as a black person, and then you're gonna be, you're gonna encounter blackface, and that did happen. So in my second year, I was at uh, Jack's, which is a very popular bar in downtown London, and um, just my first like legal um, Halloween. I'm having a great time. And it's me and my my friend who's in the book named Malcolm, and um, we're hanging out, and we're the only people calling the bar. And then I look across the to the entrance, and there are three white students dressed as cotton pickers, and they're they're in blackface, so coal black paint, overdrawn red lips, um, the whites of their eyes just it was it was just kind of like the shining or something. It was really a horrendous scene, and they came towards us, and they kind of stood in front of us, three for three and didn't say anything and they just stared and smirked and leered and I'm yelling so my friends kind of giggled and it was absurd but I'm angry about it and at this point um I don't know a whole lot about blackface I just know something's wrong and I feel intimidated and I'm yelling at them like what's your problem what do you want to say and they're not saying anything they're just leering and smirking and it felt like it went on for hours and after a couple of minutes um, a couple of South Asian people came in, and I saw their heads kind of just turned in unison, and then they went over to do the same thing to them. And the girl who was there, she looked at me, and I just couldn't intervene. Like it was just this moment of, like, just horror. Like really, like an everyday type of horror where you don't know what to do, and you're you don't know how to act. You can just yell. I couldn't hear anything. All I'm seeing are these like faces staring at me, and I it, it was really hard for me to kind of put it into words. But what I do know about the situation is that. In Canada, blackface parties dressing up like campus parties and blackface, there's been a resurgence in the last 10, 15 years. And universities seem to wash their hands of the situation because a lot of these parties don't happen on campus. So they're like, well, we can't do anything about it. If it's at a bar, then you know, you're your students but you're not on campus. And I think what, and I talk about this in the book, what the interesting thing about university is, is that it's this this cushion where you're supposed to make mistakes. You're supposed to make the worst kinds of offensive mistakes before you go into the real world. And so it's a place where white people, predominantly white people, can act out that anti-racist fantasy, but also that appropriation that they love to, that they love to, the don, right? Hairstyles, clothing, um, black scent. And um, it's also anti-racist. And so it was really a defining moment, I think, in my time at Western. It, I was in second year, it was just the beginning, where I was like, okay, this is actually really bad. This is beyond your English is great. This is this is malicious, like incredibly malicious. And after that, I, I never actually went out for Halloween again after that. That was a decade ago.
1: Reading about that, I, I just didn't know how I would have reacted in, in the situation. And I think the way that you reacted, um, it, is very natural, I think, for many people of color when they're encountered with that kind of blatant racism. Attorney, this makes me think a lot about the role and the responsibilities of universities in making students feel welcome, included, and safe. Do you feel that Western did enough um, for students like yourself? And, And if not, what should they be doing?
2: Well, I definitely don't think they've done enough. Um, one of the reasons I did choose Western I felt assured in my choice was that during the open house they said there's a zero tolerance policy racism sexism homophobia transphobia ageism so it's like okay they're going to protect me and then there's a scene in the book where I literally get told I could call the n-word and told to go back to my country and I go to campus police to go enact the zero tolerance policy and they're like there's nothing we can do and so I don't think that they do enough I think that Western um in my opinion, more so than a lot of other schools have taken the stance of silence to deal with these issues. Their students are speaking out. Um, Black and Western students who are students in the 70s and 80s, they've spoken out. They've been met with silence. Um, and so I don't think they've done enough. And when I was talking about this on Twitter a couple of years back, the Equity and Inclusion Office actually reached out and they, they said that they had reached out to me when like as a student, but they thought I was a student in like while I was in my twenties, so they didn't even know what they were saying, right? They were just trying to save face, and I think it's kind of a it's it's an out, it's an excuse to say that you have an equity and inclusion office. Because when you're in first year and second year, you don't even know where your classes are. You don't know where to find things. You don't know where the doctor's office is. How are you going to find this equity and inclusion office that sometimes has a very large name and they're dealing with they're dealing with human rights complaints? So what's happening on campus is that hate incidents are rising, which don't they're not against the law, but it's things like go back to your country, um, being called the N word. There's there's nowhere to report that. So. If a school has a place where you can go and you can talk to someone about this, get resources, if they have policies, actual policies in place that are unified across all campuses in Canada um, where you can report this stuff, if there's a a, a therapist or a professional that you can speak to and you can bypass the line um, of like the general wait list, because it's like two years, they need to start doing those things and from the very, very beginning. Um, I was at Western in September talking to their, their uh, student advisors, they're called SOFs, and uh, I was talking about racism and I was talking about sexual assault and one of the students messaged me after and said, um, we really needed this. She had been trying to actually get someone to come in to talk about race and sexual assault for a while and it wasn't happening. So we're still in the standstill. I also think that um, when it comes to sexual assault, we know there's there's resources on campus, but there are whole, not a whole lot about intimate partner violence, and it's just as prevalent of a crime on campus against young women as sexual assault. Uh, there's nowhere there's nowhere to go. Like when I was a student and I was in an abusive relationship, I had no idea I could go to a sexual assault service and say I'm being abused or this is happening. Help. Um, so this isn't just a Western problem, it's across Canada, it's across the, the US. Um, there's just a lot of work to do. And it's, su- it's very slow moving.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned about the partner um, abuse, because I, you know, I, you're right, we don't talk a lot about that. We, we, when we talk about partner violence, we often, it's uh, people that are married, um, but very, very little attention is given to not just partner violence, but young couples, right? Mm-hmm. And and not because this is like a pivotal moment in your life for a lot of people, maybe their first like serious relationship. They don't really know how things are supposed to go. You, you in this book shared your own personal experience. Why did you decide to do that?
2: Well, I think that I, I couldn't, I wouldn't have been true to writing this book if I didn't include it, because when I look back on that time in my life, I think there were some pivotal moments in my, in my time at Western And that was the first one. That was the one that caused all the other incidents. So that was the reason that I would go out and drink. Like it was, it was important that I included that. And it was also important because when I, when I graduated from Western, I did, I went to Ryerson for my master's of journalism and I did my thesis on intimate partner violence among university age women, because six years had passed. I still felt like in terms of mental health-wise and processing it, I was in the same place, and I wanted to know if this was common, and it was common. It was in fact that um, young women uh, between the ages of 15 and 24 they are the most at risk of intimate partner violence in the country. This also includes in the U.S. And what what the, the problem with that is that when you're 15, you're in, you're you're in high school. In high school, there are resources and prevention programs if you're, for teen dating. That's what they call it, teen dating or dating violence when you're an older woman, which even the universities that have like, you know, 20 year olds, they're, they're producing research for domestic violence, which suggests older cohabitating women, shelters, you think that's, you know, older women with children. So there's funding for that. There's no, there's very, very little funding or research or prevention for this university slash millennial age group. And what I found was that even students that I went to school with, friends of mine that I had interviewed, um, we were all going through it at the same time and we had no idea. And so it was important for me to include that because I think there's so many factors we don't consider. You're away from uh, from home for the first time. You think you're an adult because you're away from home. So you don't wanna burden anyone. You are learning about these things in theory. So you're learning about violence against women in your women's studies class. You're reading, even at the time, there weren't that many essays about it and still. um, So everything to you is theoretical. If he didn't put his hands on you, you think it's still theoretical. You don't know what's happening. And when I spoke to professors, they would say, my, my, my straight A students, they get this stuff. And then they come to my classroom, my, uh, my office hours after and say, he did this to me, was that abuse? And so it felt like I had to say something because I wasn't seeing a whole lot of it. And it wasn't just that um, it was happening to me and I was one of the statistics, but I'm also black. My partner was Asian. And there were a lot of, there were a lot of damaging stereotypes that played into the way that it was perceived and the way that I was believed. um, And the way that, the way that people um, perceive the situation. And then there was also the added issue of meeting in high school and this relationship following me. And I think that a lot of relationships that start in high school, when they get to university, you become different people. And a lot of things can go wrong and we don't talk about that. So it felt like it was like a greater good thing. Like I had to include it. It was the hardest chapter to write because it's so personal. This is why I chose chose the letter. Um, But it felt necessary to this conversation that we don't even, we, we still don't hear about. We hear about sexual assault. We hear about violence against older women, but not this age group
1: especially on the university campuses, as you said. Yes. Yeah. Another thing that I thought was really interesting that you talked about, because you are biracial and, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's a really clearly an important part of your book. And what I thought was interesting is that you were talking about coming into your Blackness kind of when you were surrounded by white people. I think that some people would be surprised to learn that about you.
2: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a beautiful way of saying it. Also kind of tragic that I learned about my blackness through, through whiteness, through being around white people. Um, And so, yeah, so I'm from, I'm, my dad is Jamaican and my mom is Pakistani Irish and I grew up with her side. I don't really know my dad and in my family, like I come from the best family, like they are the most loving people. And I think that love, like that lovingness kind of, erased the conversations about being black, being mixed. I was just there and that's all that mattered. But when you get to certain age, right? I don't look brown, I don't look white, I am black. And that was never addressed. And so when I was about, I'd say, I was a tween, my my neighbor who's white, um, she actually said, do you know what the N-word is? And I said, what is that? I'm looking at my mom. My mom's not saying anything. And she's like, when people hate you because of the color of your skin. And that was my first introduction to the the idea that people would see me as Black and that people would hate me for the color of my skin. And um, she basically teaches me how to break someone's nose, which like, spoiler alert, I don't. But um, yeah, it was, it was a lesson that I carried with me. And it was a lesson that I learned very quickly when I got to Western when I was I grew up in Toronto, I grew up, I went to school in North York. So predominant like the, the students that I hung around or that were in my high school were either Filipino or they were black. And if you were mixed, you were like, hey, I'm mixed or you had your light skin camp and your dark skin camp. So everyone was playing with race. And so I felt okay. I'm like, you know what? I don't know what I am, but I'll just stay here. But when I got to Western, that was so much harder because the second someone sees you, you're black. And um, I had tried this thing where I'd be like, you know, like I'm, I'm biracial. And they're like, doesn't matter, you're black enough. And so I quickly learned that it didn't matter what I was. I was black. And on the other side of it i wasn't black enough and that was difficult um, trying to make friends or trying to be part of like a, a black student association it felt difficult um, and i also felt like at that point i couldn't say it was mixed because if i said it, i was also brown people would think like oh well she doesn't want to be black she's saying that she's mixed so she's not black and so it was i was i was not black enough or i was too black And so in that environment, I kind of just surrendered to it. And um, it was in reading actually feminist texts like Sarah Ahmed, um, where I was like, okay, I can be both things. Outside, I am this person. When I'm at home, I can eat Indian food. When I go outside, I am Black. And I'm going to celebrate this. This is my superpower. This is how, this is my shield. I am Black, and that is okay. And I can be both things. But I am, the way I'm treated is with anti-Black racism. And that took a long time to, um, To have, to get to a place where I'm at with my family now, that took a long time to, I think they felt betrayed in a way that they're like, you know, you grew up with us. How do you see yourself as black? Um, But um, it was a journey. And I think it was one that I was really afraid to write about because I didn't want people to think that I was selling out. I didn't want them to think that, oh, she's mentioning that she's brown because she doesn't want to be black. It's that when you're biracial or you're multiracial, you don't fit in anywhere. Like, there's nowhere you fit in. And that's what I wanted to show. Um, And that it's up to you ultimately to decide how you feel, but no one can decide that and make that decision for you.
1: That's true. It's almost like, again, people are trying to put you in this box. It's like, yeah. Are I black and this is how I, but you're right. I mean, there's the identity that you are, right? What you actually are. And then it's how other people sort of perceive you, you know?
2: Okay.
1: You know, in the beginning, I had mentioned that this book ha- has come at a really great time because I-, I-, I can't think of any book written by a young person about race and university experiences in Canada that kind of touches on so many things that I could, you know, identify with. Mm-hmm. What made you decide? Cause usually people write memoirs when they're like 60. So. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I want to say this because it, it irks me so, so much. Um, I, I'm also a journalist. And when I was in J school, the idea was that you had to unlock a certain age, pain, experience, gender to write a memoir, AKA six year old white men. And if you thought about it, you were entitled, you were indulgent, you were lazy. And so that's what I kind of grew up on. And personal writing isn't wasn't as big as it is 10 years ago. So, I had this idea. Really, I had this idea from when I started at Western. I would write it on scraps of paper, I write the, you know, I wrote it this as a book, as a as a novel, as a as a play, as a blog. And it felt like I really had to tell the story, but everyone around me when I would speak about it would say like you're 20 something what do you know about pain what do you know about suffering and what that ended up doing to me that dismissal of my experience ended up making me see it as nothing like oh well it was just nothing I was whining and um it really wasn't until a couple of drafts in because I was actually writing the book as a humor like humor like I thought it'd be a chapters in the humor section and my editor was like uh no this is really dark and I was like oh it is and It was, it was kind of because that's what people tell you, you're so young, what could you have, you couldn't have suffered. And so I had internalized that. So I think when I had decided to turn this into a memoir, not the play, not the blog was around um, fourth year, when I was in my first only class full of black women. Um, it was Black women's history in Canada. It was the only place where we could come together where I had seen so many Black women. Uh, We commiserated, we talked about this, and I realized all this time when people said, you're exaggerating, you're militant, you're angry, you're making it up, um, you're in denial, was actually, it was none of those things because everyone around me was experiencing it and they were really going through it. And during that time, I also put on for colored girls at Western and a fun fact is that it was actually put on the year I was born and only white women were allowed to to play the Black women's roles, which is wild. But um, I put it on. And I think having that experience of my fourth year being all about us for once and be having a soft place to land, I had to write a memoir. So I was like, this is my experience and I like to write and this is what I'm called to do. Um, so I need to put something together that represents all of us. And then of course I went on to become a journalist and I thought, well, you know, people don't really believe me when I talk about my experience, I have to use data, but the data exists. And so the book went from just being about me and representing the people I knew to putting it in a broader kind of making it a current issue, right? Like if you look far, if you look deep enough into the internet, you will find that this stuff is not new stuff, but we're just not talking about it. And so it became a book that was about me, but also about what's going on in Canada. So I,
1: I need to know how has it been received? What is the feedback that you're getting from students, from people, universities? Please tell me. I'm so curious.
2: It's it's been really phenomenal. It's been um, it's been a beautiful experience. I honestly, for a minute, I was scared. I really didn't think it was going to go that way at all. <laughs> but um, it has been like the most touching thing. And when I was writing this book. All I really wanted, all I wanted was for for it to resonate. And you don't know if it's going to resonate. And so what I've seen is that I've seen um, former students and current students being like, for the longest time, this, I was trying to tell somebody this, and now it's here. Like, this is what I needed to hear and to show people so it's here. I got to hear from... Um, old, like people in their 60s and their 70s who are like, I I lived through this. This is the same thing. How is this the same thing? I have heard a lot of people saying, um, what I was saying about the humor thing, saying, it wasn't until I read your book that I realized that that was actually traumatic. And now I'm working through it. Like I didn't get a chance to work through it because people told me it wasn't real. So that was really beautiful. And, um, there are grade 12s reading my book, which is amazing. Grade 12s reading my book. So they're prepared. Um, faculty, like higher ups. Um, I've been doing keynotes. I've been giving keynotes at universities about race, about what it means to be a black woman on campus. Um, Hearing from parents, it's been a real joy to kind of see it kind of take off in this way. And Ryerson, it's, it's a Ryerson Reads pick, so the campus is reading it. Western bought 900 copies for their sophs and mandated them to read it. It's being taught in class. It's being taught in classes that I used to be a marker for when I was at Ryerson, and so it's really phenomenal. And um, I'm very grateful because I think it says a couple of things. I think it says that perhaps we're starting to get ready we're ready for this moment, but also that we're realizing that whatever was we thought was working was not working. And it's time to start listening. And so it's been, uh, it's been an incredible, incredible moment. And I'm really, really grateful that people even take the time to reach out to me. Um, My inbox is flooded. There's people just being like, thank you. And I'm like, oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. So (laughs) yeah, it's been great.
1: (laughs) If you could, um, what advice would you give to a young eternity? A few a few words you could tell your younger self, what would what would it be?
2: I would say um love yourself, know yourself and make decisions that you are proud of because I don't think that we teach young people that enough about loving yourself and The milestones that we celebrate when you're young is you drink, you get a Western, you get your stomach pumped, Um, you have sex when you don't want to have sex, you do all these things, and I thought that those were what I needed to do. But I think if I had taken time to know who I was and been firm about it and been who I was. I would have been able to make better decisions and love the decisions that I made, even when I made a mistake. And so I think it would have been nice to kind of take time to know who I was um, before getting into these situations and knowing that these superficial milestones that we teach youth are important to becoming an adult were not so important. And I didn't have to do those things.
1: Yeah. You know, I didn't, I've been asking you so many questions. I didn't give you a chance to read a section from your book. Is there anything that you want to read?
2: Sure, yeah. Um. Just to like lighten the mood, I'll read something from uh, <laughs> the the last chapter. It's my favorite chapter. It's called, uh, called The End of the Rainbow, which is the one we're talking about where we're in the class of black women. And um, I'll actually read the last page if that's good with you, because I think it's so magical. Um, so just as a bit of um, of background: we put on this play. So we're putting on *For Colored Girls*, and I don't know if you've read *For Colored Girls*. It is tough. It is tough to read. The it, it's hard. And we were not ready, and we're like, we're not going to make it. Like we're going to make fools of ourselves. And um, the first the first day, we made fools of ourselves. And then the second day. We thought, you know what? We're just gonna bomb this. Whatever, we'll get it done. And um, the first night, no one showed up. Really, it was like 12 people. So we thought we're moving to a bigger venue. We're gonna embarrass ourselves because we don't have people coming. And um, I could hear people like in the back. So I kind of peeked through the curtain, and there must have been over a hundred black women in the audience. And I had never seen so many black people in one place in at Western. And they were from the. They were like. There were were grandmothers there, there were students, there were faculty, and it was so nice. And so um, while we were doing this play, we were so depressed, right? We were just like, the end is right there, the end is right there. And this play was really that moment. So um, I'll read from that last bit here. Um, Okay. For many of us, this play, the words in the book, were defining moments of our lives at Western. It was a refuge for the rest of our time here and an extension of who we had become. And like the characters in the book, we were connected to each other now. Our colors formed a rainbow. Even in exhaustion and hopelessness, sisterhood does not give up on each other. We decided to move forward and do our last show. Seeing all those women in the crowd, friends, strangers, elderly women, faculty, other students, we knew that they also needed this play. We went on stage that evening and gave our last performance everything we had. We weren't just unnamed characters, we were nurtured by snaps and affirming hums and nods and laughter and applause. We gave back by being our truest selves, our most vulnerable, our bodies radiating love and grief and emotion. The last four years had been lonely and hard, but also rewarding. Some days were so dull and gray, it seemed like all the color in the world had gone away forever. Some days the sun escaped from the clouds and danced in our skin, and the beads of sweat that trickled down our temples reminded us that we were alive. We had carried on through all of it, for ourselves and for each other, under the darkened sky. Towards the end of the play, the women all come together on stage to recite a series of monologues called No More Love Poems. The Lady in Yellow talks about feeling vulnerable as a Black woman and the belief that they are immune to emotional pain. And this part's from the book, from the poem. But being alive and being a woman and being colored is a metaphysical dilemma I haven't conquered yet. Do you see the point? My spirit is too ancient to understand the separation of soul and gender. My love is too delicate to have thrown back on my face. At 18, I made the decision to come to Western and I had experienced things I only thought were possible in movies, but it wasn't all about having a good time. I had enjoyed the tenderness of strangers as well as their rejection. I had felt the devastation of violence and loss and the healing of love and friendship. I had learned the power of my body female, brown skin, to inspire both desire and hatred, to determine how I moved through the world. The experience was painful and healing, ugly and beautiful. And like the lady in yellow, I am still trying to understand the charged nature of my existence in this world, one that is highly politicized and racialized. As Jasmine moved to the front of the stage to deliver the last line, the thickness of anticipation swelled between us. And this is for colored girls who have considered suicide her voice broke, but are moving to the ends of their own rainbows. A sob ripped from her body, relief and pain at once. One by one, each of us on stage started to weep, a collective surge of emotion and exhaustion. In the audience, women wiped their own eyes and nodded in unison. As we took our final bow to a standing ovation of teary-eyed audience members, I felt a lightness I hadn't known in years, a reassurance that everything was going to be okay. Hand in hand our full lips quivering and tears sparkling as they rolled down our melanin cheeks we looked up as the gray sky burst open showering us in warm colorful light the rainbow had been there all along
1: that that is such a gorgeous gorgeous passage thank you so much for reading thank that you. and for doing this and finally there's a little bit of a development happening, isn't there? So there is. tell us, let's end on that wonderful note about, about the development of your book.
2: <laughs> yes, so um, my book was sold at auction uh, for the TV and film rights. So coming to the screen, don't know who's gonna play me yet, but um, it was um, bought uh, by Temple Street productions, and um, they have a um, a US chapter a Boat Rocker Media. So yeah, so it will be adapted. I think it's going to be a TV series. It's very exciting. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. And um, as soon as I have more information, I will, you will, I bet you I will be sharing it. I will be up there sharing it. But um, yeah, I'm thrilled. It's really exciting
1: wonderful and congratulations this is an absolutely incredible book i loved it so much they said this would be fun race campus life and growing up eternity mortis thank you thank you
0: that was cbc's Ithel musa in conversation with eternity martis about her acclaimed memoir they said this would be fun special thanks to the ottawa public library and library and archives canada for their collaboration in our virtual season It's all available online at writersfestival.org and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please consider making a donation to support our virtual programming as it may be a long while before we are able to gather again in person. Interrogating our ideas of race through the lens of her own multiracial identity, critically acclaimed novelist Tessa McWatt turns her eye on herself, her body, and this world in a powerful new work of nonfiction. Shame on me. An Anatomy of Race and Belonging is a personal exploration of history and identity, colour and desire, from a writer who having been plagued with confusion about her race all her life has at last found kinship and solidarity in story. Here's CBC's Ethel Musa in conversation with Tessa McWatt.
1: Lisa thank you so much um, for being a part of the Ottawa International Writers Festival and talking to me about your book, Shame on Me, An Anatomy of Race and Belonging. Um, There are a lot of questions I want to ask you about this book. Um, But the first question that I want to talk to you about is a question that you have gotten asked a lot in your life, which is, what are you? right? It's a question that people ask when they just can't seem to pinpoint where you're from, and they want to categorize you. They want to slot you somewhere. And that that question's followed you throughout your life. Can you tell me a little bit about having to answer that question And, and the more important question, which you thought needs to be answered, which
3: is, who am I? Thanks so much. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and um, that question, yeah, you're, you're right. It's It's been that, you know, the, the, it comes from the, an, an episode in the book that really starts the book, which is when I was eight years old in class in uh, in Toronto, in, in Willowdale. And um, so uh, the, the, the word Negro came up and nobody knew, including myself, what what the word meant. And so, um, you know, we were all looking around at each other. And then someone says, yeah, Tessa, you know, and I, I knew exactly where I was from. And I knew, you know, um, uh, you know, that our, that our family had black um, heritage, but I didn't know what a Negro was. And so the teacher sort of went, no, 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 that's, you know, that's not, that's not quite right you know um there um what are you tessa and and i and i couldn't answer the question and so the 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 book sort of heads off in that direction to answer that question because i couldn't answer the question because like i said i didn't know the word even though i knew um the concept of blackness And and but she was telling me though no, that that's not true that there is something else so and as i mentioned in the um in the book i think it was the moment that i became a writer because it became this its moment that i sought to unpack what that meant, you know, what am I, you know, and it, and I knew that it had to do with the way that, that that the teacher was talking about, it had to do with some kind of material thing, it had to do with biology, but my biology was so complex that I knew from my from my family that the book heads off on dissecting, on analysing, on unpacking that whole idea of biological race being something that is true, that um, that is something that is uh, that people rely on and how unreliable that is as a way of understanding the world. And so we get to the point of, um, you know, the end, like you said, at the end of the book, my question goes way beyond what are you? Because I I hope what I do is undermine some of those biological um, stereotypes and to to make them meaningless, including getting a DNA test and um, and to ask the, of myself and as and of the readers, you know, who are you? Because it's much more of a political question than it is a biological question. You know, who are you in the face of anti-black racism, and who are you in the face of drowning migrants, and who are you, um, you know, in the face of poverty? So it becomes much more of a of an issue that has to do with how you situate yourself in the world of, of power. In, um, in, in, the, in the structure, in the structural racism that exists in our society. So it goes beyond beyond the what.
1: Yeah, and you know, I, I remember you talking about being sort of on the receiving end at different times in your life of racial slurs. And it just can't seem to, you know, you're Susie Wong or you're you know black bitch, Pocahontas, I just don't know where, what to call you. That ambiguity, do you think when you're talking like as you just mentioned about power and people trying to, to figure out where you are in that sort of power structure that do you think you have benefited from that
3: ambiguity or has it been a burden? That is such a good question um, because I think you know I think that, that that structural racism, the way that I talk about it in the in the book is very much about um, my metaphor for it is very much the plantation. System, you know, so that we're talking about a uh, a structure that was based on colonizing a country, murder and enslavement and indenture, and so because my background encompasses all of those things, including the colonizer, um, it's it I, I've had access to all kinds of those um, levels of hierarchy, if you will, and one of the things that I can say um, is that you know in in my in my um plantation structure metaphor, I had access to the master's house because of my mixed race heritage, and so that is it can seem like an advantage, but it isn't an advantage because all it is is participating in the structure of that of that structural inequality and so with knowledge of that it's not an advantage at all because i you know am not uh Outside of the structure that that also has to keep people out of the house, and so I, you know, I don't want to be a part of that structure. I don't want to be in that at all. I don't want to belong in that space. Um, you mentioned at one point about your grandmother, you know,
1: talking to you about a partner that you had, and you know, him being black, and and that was going backwards, you know, to 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 you know. Talk to me a little bit about that and how that impacted, impacted you because you were young, but you were still kind of processing what that meant about Black sort of being a step back rather than uh, progressing.
3: Yeah, it's related to that idea of, um, you know, moving through a structure and finally getting to the plantation house rather than being in the field. And so she was a product of that colonialism that saw that as progress. Um, and it's you know that saw that you know being coming out of of um, your your situation that that colonialism built coming out of it advancing upwards was part was something that was you know important to do and as a kid I think when she said that I I knew it was wrong I knew that I knew that it was it was racist but um, but I didn't actually have the way of understanding how it was racist you know and so but also I think at that point when she said I couldn't marry a black man I think I was more upset and ob- offended by the idea of having to be married <laughs> than 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 about the her racism so I was like what I, was, I just have a boyfriend what are you talking about <laughs> so it was more that but I, I kind of I obviously I understand it now but I think I understand it now as a part of her um Colonization, you know, a part of her 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 own mentality being colonized to to perpetuate that. Essentially, what she was really trying to do was to help you.
1: It it wasn't out of maliciousness. She wanted the best for you, and she saw that as a socially going that going backwards. You you know, Tessa, your your the title of your book is "Shame on Me," and 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 the the concept of shame comes up up again and again and. There's something that you say about that, and you said, shame buries our anger, but also our compassion. Can you I- explain what that means, and, and, and why shame, that comes up again
3: and again? Yeah, um, so the, the, the shame, I'll just I'll address the, the idea of shame first as a general thing, in that um, I find it difficult to uh, accept that any of us isn't ashamed and full of shame at the way that we can currently live and that there's so much inequality and that there's such a division in society that we, that we are all taking part in, you know? And so, so I think it's our shame as a, as a, as a, um, uh, a kind of collective thing, but it's definitely my shame in terms of feeling like, um, you know, I was born out of a system that is, that was so, um was so, Unequal that that and and so and that I participated in that system and as a kid in Canada I participated in that system of of a kind of liberal idea that you get that you get better and that you get high, you go higher, you know and so I think it is all of our shame as well as that particular shame of um, you know slavery um, of being related to slave in um, overseers. To being related to um, people whose families sold them into slavery, you know. So there's lots of shame around race, and what I meant why about it burying our compassion, I think, is that if if shame is shame, makes you hide, you know, and so it doesn't allow you to um, be upfront about your place in the society in which you are functioning. And if you're not upfront about that place, then you you kind of, you can't see um, your own, you can't see others. So if you can't see yourself in that place, then you can't see others in that place and your responsibility to them. And I think one of the things that the book does and the book um, tried to do in terms of uncovering that shame and why it's so there, it's like so that, I can kind of throw it off, and so it's not because it's so because I don't want it to be my shame. I say shame on me, because it's the shame of a system, and it's the shame I inherited. But if I throw it off by being present and being aware of my my place in a in a um, uh, a structure, my place in society, and my place in in terms of power, then I can see what my job is as a fellow citizen and human being to be compassionate to, to others. I don't, I'm not worried about my place in it so much. I'm worried. I'm I'm thinking about others.
1: And on that note, Tessa, I'd love for you to
3: read um, a portion of your book. I think this would be the perfect time. Great. I think I'll just read. um, So the book is, is structured like a, like an experiment it's structured and it's in, it's in response to um, the, the kind of biological um, and um, uh, the the kind of scientific racism that took place in from the you know 15th century on but in a particular moment of um, the height of slavery and and height of colonialism and it's so it's kind of as a response against that to that scientific racism and um, and so I um, I structured it as a as a as an experiment. So it has sections, hypothesis, experiment, analysis, and findings. And so I'm just going to read from the beginning section um, called Hypothesis. A young Chinese woman, so young, nearly still a girl, runs through a field of sugarcane. Her cotton shift is torn, her hair wild, there is fear on her face. My grandmother... She is escaping something terrible. Her legs are scraped by sharp stalks. Blood is dripping from her knee. I imagine her eyes are streaming with tears. She is running because in her countryside village in Demerara, British Guyana, she has just been raped by her uncle. I imagine my Indian ancestor as a strong woman, perhaps originally from Ud, modern Uttar Pradesh who could squat easily, hunched over green, sword-like leaves sprouting from emerging stalks. She is exhausted, pulling weeds out of unfamiliar soil in British Guiana. Thin, fragile from the 112-day journey by ship, she is lucky to have survived on a daily ration of beef or pork, suet, a biscuit, a few raisins. My Arawak ancestor is in a dugout quarrel on the Bora Bora River that runs through the Iracrama forest. She paddles past a giant otter sunning itself on a tree stump. My Portuguese ancestor, perhaps from Madeira, arrives among the first free immigrants to the colony in 1835. In her small Hessian sack, She has hidden 20 delicate squares of lace that she stitched while watching her father haul his fishing nets from the sea. There is a rumor about my French ancestor, but she will never confirm for anyone in the colony that her father had a chalice and a silver ring with a hexagon pattern, the Star of David, hidden in his suitcase when he arrived from France. My African great-great-grandmother is lost amongst trees that don't know her name, don't speak her language. Trees that have erased her. She can't find the path that will take her to the clearing. She is getting weak. I reach out to take her by the hand. My Scottish great-great-great-grandmother takes her last breath in East Lothian, and the book she has been reading falls across her chest. She never knows about the brown women with their hands in the soil.
1: That is very, very beautiful. Thank you, Tessa. You know, as you read that, I'm thinking about all of these people in your your ancestors, in your family that helped make and create you and their histories, their stories, their geography. And in your book, you write about taking a DNA test, which is very much in fashion these days of people trying to figure out all of these places that they come from. And it seems to be in vogue right now. People want to know. I'd love to know why you wanted to take a DNA test and what you think it says about us as a society that people are so curious at this moment in time about their
3: history and their their ancestors. Yeah, I think that I wanted to, I, I mean, I didn't I didn't ever not know my history in terms of, you know, through stories. And that's what the book is about. It's about, you know, I got a lot of stories from my family, from my mother. There are things that are handed down and you kind of know who you are. We knew what the, the makeup, the genetic makeup of our family was. And if you know Guyana, then you know it has these possibilities as, as, as um you know, the background. But I guess what I wanted to do was um, kind of, Again for the book for this idea of of biology over stories um, I wanted to look at what that particular bio, biology was and so I did the test as a way of confirming the stories and it, and it's interesting because the test con- did confirm the stories and so and, and so what what I I got from it was that it actually was much less potent than the stories and that the stories are actually much more real because all of the the only thing that the biology test, you know, the, the genetic test rather, um, told me was, or told me differently was just how much my background is made up of people who move and people who have had to move and people and forced movement as well as, you know, necessary movement. And I think we all are people who have had to move or move um, for various reasons. And so anybody that has a mixed background like that, um, it's interesting to find out just where it's, you know, where people have come from. But it it wasn't as powerful as I thought it would be. In other words, you know, my my parents' stories are far more powerful. And to answer your question about why now, you know, I think there's such instability in the world and people are looking for ways of belonging that might not have to do with national ways of seeing each other and or, or ourselves. And, and i And I also think the world is far more divided um, between you know those who have and those who have not and and those who have and are, are those who have not rather, um, it's it's an interesting idea to, to feel grounded in possible histories that that we that we might not have access to. And so I think it's about wanting to wanting to belong in different ways. Maybe we're all alienated from how we currently belong. Maybe the nation states don't work. Maybe maybe we you know are uh, maybe for me it's like I belong with smaller groups than than um than the than the whole and then a whole country for example you know. So maybe it's people trying to figure out really who they are rather than and so instead of looking at who they are, they look at what they are you know, which is the whole kind of is anti- the antithesis of what my book is trying to do, you know, trying to, is trying to get away from those kinds of um, uh, identities that come through um, other structures like a national, national identity or biological or racial identities and to try to look at who you are and how you participate in your own uh, small culture that might be, might be local, might be um, global but it's like more about who you are rather than what you are.
1: You know, one of the things that you talked about in your book, which I really appreciated was um, discussing sort of the racism and science and scientific racism and, and, and how, you know, black bodies throughout history up until now have been perceived, you know, from Sarah Bartman to Serena Williams, you know, and one of the things I thought was interesting because you mentioned about how now suddenly features, black features are in vogue, maybe not necessarily on black people, right? The cele- the celebrities these days that are celebrated for having those features are white celebrities with these features and they're not seen as sort of being black features. I'd love to have I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, because we seem to be, you know, coming to a time when blackness is being Celebrated or parts of blackness are being celebrated, but just not on black people. I mean, you even hear about black fishing—you know, white women who look black. So um, I'd love to have your your thoughts on on this as a writer and somebody
3: who's critically looking at the issue of race. That's a really um, interesting area to pursue, and it's and it, yeah, and and um, it's it's complicated because. I think in terms in terms of what I say in the book it, that, that whiteness is the sort of predominant narrator of in in cultures that um, around the world, you know that that whiteness is the is the um, is the 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 power structure. You know, there's there is you know there are people um, uh, who actively engage in white supremacy, and then there's just the fact that. Uh, most of the power around the world is a kind of whiteness, even if it's not a white person who is holding that power. But but it's it's a kind of whiteness. So I guess what I what what I meant and what I was thinking about in terms of um, what you so rightly said is that you know those features are are things that are attractive, but not necessarily on black people, and that there's an appropriation of that. And I think that it's it's interesting because I think that that there is. Um, that there is an exotic, you know, there's an exotic, exotic, sexualized way of thinking about a black woman in a black woman's body that goes, um that is historical, you know, that there's, they've, they've been ejectified. But I then I think, you know, when a, when a white woman takes on those sexual, sexualized features, then it's, then it's, through it it's got a different power attached to it, and so because it's got that whiteness and that power, and so it keeps the objectification for the actual black body, you know, the actual black woman, and so it perpetuates that plantation mentality, you know, perpetuates the the whiteness in the, in the, at the top echelon and the blackness in at the lower echelon, while still appropriating the sexuality that is traditionally associated with. With black bodies, and so it's very, very tricky, and it's also something that has been um, appropriated by capitalism. You know, capitalism has, you know, the market has found how to how to sell those um, bits of black bodies that um, that that white women want to want to possess, and so it's um, it's it's a kind of really um, insidious cycle of objectification and yet appropriation at the same time. That's right.
1: So I guess my last question to you, Tessa, is do you think the answer is what that gentleman in Speaker's Corner was talking about, you know, just browning us all up, right? If we're all the same or if we've all have some sort of mix, is will that be the end of racism? <laughs> what are your what are your what are your thoughts on what he said today?
3: Um, no, I'm afraid that's not going to be that's not going to be the solution, um, because I think that the problem is not in race. The problem is in racism, and racism ble- breeds race. Racism makes race, and I think that's one of the things I try to get at in in um, in the book is that racism is a continuing power dynamic between people who are in power and those who are othered, and at different Times in history, those that diff- there have been different people. So we are the world continually makes race, and it's making race right now. You know, their the borders make race. People continually um, sort of fighting for space. People who are being um, being uh, victimized because of climate change are racialized because they're not is they're not important enough for um, the 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 kind of uh, plantation house to pay attention to. And so it's a constant thing. So the the, the Browning is um irrelevant really. Um, it's about deeper power structures and a and a deeper way of understanding how we live with the planet. You know, it we that that we that we don't other ourselves or other the planet or other animals or anything. You know, we, we consider new ways of thinking about how to live together rather than, you know, maintaining structures and yet, uh, you know, kind of mixing races. I, it's not, it's not about those things.
1: So well said, Tessa, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really do hope um, a lot of people read your book, Shame on Me, an anatomy of race and belonging. It's so beautifully written and so honestly written. And what I enjoyed most about it was um the, the, the historical uh, examples and uh, just your analysis is incredible when, you, when you're talking about race. It's a very complicated
3: issue and you've contextualized it so, so very well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ethel. It's really, really lovely to talk to you and um, a real pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: That was CBC's Ethel Musa in conversation with Tessa McWatt about her book Shame on Me. I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you a copy of these books. I also want to acknowledge the invaluable support of the City of Ottawa, the Government of Ontario, the Government of Canada, the Ontario Arts Council, and the Canada Council for the Arts for doing so much to sustain Canadian culture and the literary arts through this difficult time. The next installment of Writers' Festival Radio appears on November 20th and begins our Republic of Childhood programming with a spotlight on Deborah Ellis and Kenneth Opel. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubey. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. It's been a marathon of a virtual season, and I'm so grateful to all the writers and hosts who participated, and all of you for staying curious and connected